Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we're rewinding back to episode 1334 of Wolves and Liberty, originally published April 15th. 2015. Guys, I am running Rewinds this week because we have the Pond Building Workshop. And even though it's a smaller workshop, as I started to look at all of the logistics of getting ready for, you know, about 20 people to be here for a few days and showing up Thursday morning and not having a reception day like we usually do, like show up and let's go. Um, I realized that I was going to freak out and I needed to not freak out and I needed to do something about it. So I selected our kickoff show today uh, for this week of Rewinds about doing something about it. In my case, what I did about it was what is in my control? My control is I can just run Rewinds. There's a reason you work for yourself, stupid Spirico. That's so that when you end up in situations like this, you can make decisions and just say there won't be new shows this week. And people actually like Rewinds, so don't be a dumbass and just put up a Rewind for five days. We might even get an expert counsel show at the end of the week. It depends on how much content I have by Tuesday. I'll make a decision on that. But overall, we're doing rewinds this week. Wolves and Liberty came to me because a guy wrote me an email. And this is what he said in the email. If I can't vote for change, if I can't wake up the masses, if I can't trust either side, what the hell can I do? Please don't tell me to plant trees and get chickens. For the record, I've always done that. I see value, but clearly it's not enough. What happens when they come to take my chickens? Bulldoze my garden and raise my taxes to pay for doing so. What happens when they take away the last of my natural rights? I see the writing on the wall, and sadly I know you are right about the voting issue. So what the hell do we do? What do I do? How do we fight back? This entire show is about that concept and the simplicity of actually doing it. But I realized as I listened to parts of it, as I was screening it for Rewind uh, service this week, that there was something in it that I probably didn't say. Maybe I did somewhere and I missed it, but I don't think I did. And that is, don't do things that you don't want to do just because you think they're things that are necessary to react to a situation that you're worried about. Think about this. This, this, this episode is almost five years old now. Was four years old? Yeah, four years old. No, f five years old. This episode is, was it 2014 or 2015? I gotta look, guys. It's uh, 2015, so it's four years ago. The guy that wrote me this letter was probably convinced by now the shit would have hit the fan. And they would have come. And the blue helmets were coming. And you could tell there was a place of fear that this guy wrote this email from. The world as I see it today isn't much different than the world it was in 2015. We got a new president. People have lost their minds about that, screaming that he's taken their rights. But when you go up to them and say, exactly what rights has he taken from you? They don't know. Because he hasn't. The system is the system. That's the message of this episode. The system is the system. The system is the issue. The system is the problem. Do you really think in uh, The Matrix, if Agent Smith had been Agent Thompson, that things would have been different, things would have been better? Or do you think it would have been the same because the system was the system. That was the entire message of that movie. A little trivia aside here for you guys. I put out a meme on this. I don't think anybody got it. The movie The Matrix. The main character. The chosen one. His name 
is what? Neo. Do you know what Neo means? Neo means new. Neo-fascism is new fascism. Neo-conservatism is new, new, new conservatism. Neo-liberal is new liberal. A lot of people, I think, throw those words around. They have no idea what they're actually saying. Neo means new. So they gave you the answer as to what Neo was all about, a renewal of the Matrix in the very first movie in the first ten minutes. <laughs> it's amazing how things can be just put out in plain sight and people don't see them. And even after they see the ending, they didn't understand the beginning that told you what the ending was going to be. Interesting. There's a lot of that in this show from four years ago, guys. We have the capacity to create liberty and freedom in our own lives. And many of the, the, the nations that we point to as being horrible examples of failure, if you lived there and you understood the things that we talk about, you would have the opportunity there to keep create liberty and freedom in your own life. There is always opportunity. There is always a way to live apart and parallel to systems so that we can take what we want from them and ignore as much as possible. There is always a place to move away from the masses of control and have more freedom and more liberty. There is always a potential, no matter where you go, for some level of walking to freedom. It's one of the things people do not understand and respect, and they do not really appreciate how amazing our republic still is because you can do that so easily. For some people, walking to freedom means crossing a border while being shot at or floating on a raft and hoping when you get somewhere you'll be accepted where you go. In this republic, if you live in a state that's doing something stupid like California or Illinois, crossing the state border is as easy as renting a U-Haul and getting in your car and going. That's one option of thousands and thousands of options But I don't think that anybody should be out there building aquaponic systems or having ducks or chickens or composting or doing any of the things that we talk about here unless those are things that they want to do. What is it that you want in your life and go build that and damn do not let fear that somebody might come take it from you someday? Did you hear the words this man? What happens when they come to take my chickens? When they come to take my garden? What happens? What happens when they come to take your shoes? What happens when they come to take your house? What happens when they come to take the sugar out of your cabinet? What happens when they come to take your dog away? What happens when they come to take your kids? What are you going to do? Stop having things because somebody someday might somehow come and take them from you? Have we grown so cowardice as a society that we would literally refrain from doing that which we want because someone someday somehow some way might take what we have built and then the same person will take that sticker Mulan the Bay come and take them on their car about their guns and fear building a garden because somebody somewhere someday might in some way try to take their freaking tomato. We are a conflicted people because we have lost our courage. We are a conflicted people because we have forgotten that there are only two choices in life when it comes to freedom and liberty and independence. You can kneel at the feet of those who wish to take from you, or you can stand. There is no third option. You can't remain hunched over and hope that you're ignored as a half-stand or half-kneeler. You stand or you kneel. 
You fight or you don't fight. And in today's show, we look at wolves and how wolves created what's known as a trophic cascade and changed the course of a river. Not by voting, not by going to war, not by organizing, not by becoming politically active, not by paying lobbyists, not by exposing the treachery of lobbyists, not by becoming Republican wolves or Democratic wolves or Libertarian wolves or even anarchist wolves, though that's kind of where they ended up, because that's what they are, anarchists. They changed the course of the river by being wolves and being afforded the opportunity to be a wolf. We can learn so much from that. There is no need to sit around in fear of what may happen someday because somebody might take it from you. In fact, if you really believe that somebody someday might take the things that you most want to do from you, then don't you think, much like the dying cancer patient who knows they have only six months to live that's only wanted to ju- always wanted to jump out of an airplane with a parachute and one day was going to do it and it was on their bucket list, as soon as they find out, and as soon as they get through the, the bulk of the five stages of grief, they're on the phone and they're making the appointment to jump out of the effing airplane. If you really think someone will take from you, don't you think you should you should build what you can while you can? And what if they don't? And what if you sit in fear and you act like some sort of domesticated dog, which is what they want from you. That's how they manage us. They manage us like cattle. I've said this before. They manage you like a stupid cow that will will willingly, happily walk once a day to be milked, to have its, its life essence, it's supposed to be for its calf, taken from it, but it will walk and happily be milked because it relieves its discomfort. Try that shit with a pig. Try that shit with a pig. You'll end up opened up by a tusk. And if the pig gets one second, one chance to get through one hole in one fence, it's gone, and it starts making new pigs. And in one generation, they start to look like a wild pig. A feral pig is not a feral pig. A feral pig is a natural pig, a wild pig. It is innately a pig. And in fact, it's not anything other than it's just a pig. We are humans. Humans are not designed for domestication. We are not designed to be domesticated. We think at an incredibly higher, high level, higher than any other form of life that we know of. Certainly higher than any other form of life on this planet. And yet we allow ourselves, we permit ourselves to be placed under a yoke. For fear that if we do not obey the yoke, a larger yoke may come. And someone may take our share, our sheaths of grain. Now, this episode's all about the fact that when you stop behaving like that, you stop being that. And when you stop being that, others notice. And others choose to stand up and stop being like that. You don't convince them. You demonstrate. You take the lesson of the wolf. Your pack forms around you. And then you do what wolves do. With that, let's go ahead and rewind. Again, back to episode 1334 of Wolves and Liberty, originally published April 15th, 2015. So they just get to an exasperated state. What the hell do I do? This is where the wolves come in. I'm going to play something for you. Some of you may have heard this before. 
but I want to use this to set the stage for today's episode. Because the first thing I'm going to tell you will sound like it's way too simple. Like it can't be that easy. Like it can't really work that way. But I'm going to set the stage with this. And it's really worth taking your time today to go watch this actual video that this commentary comes from. But it's a pretty amazing story of how wolves change things simply by being what they are. Exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, but the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed 
in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Now, I played the audio of that for you because that's what I can do. This is an audio show, so I can't put the video up. I don't know that you can fully take in um, how amazing that is from just the audio. But let me give you the upshot. The wolves changed the river. The river. A mighty thing. How would man change the river. Let's say that man decided the river was too erosive, that it was it was cutting its banks out, it was doing things that were erratic and we wanted to stabilize it. We would bring in heavy machinery and to change this much river over this far a course, I mean we would have low boys loaded down with dozers and excavators and gabions and rocks and cement and concrete and saws going and trees being felled and We'd trap beavers out because they might mess something up. And we would spend huge amounts of energy, and in the end, we would make the system worse. We would not stabilize the river. We would not fix the system because we would be going about it entirely the wrong way. How did the wolf change the course of a river? The actions of a river. How did a wolf do that? By being a wolf. That was it. The wolf did not have to think, I want that river to change. All the wolf had to do was behave the way that a wolf is supposed to behave. I played that for you, and I made that point for you, because I want to tell you the single biggest thing you can do up front instead of at the end like I usually do. And I want you to believe me. It sounds overly simple, but change yourself. It will change others. Be the wolf. It's that easy. There is no more to it. And you'll say, but I'm one person. Great. How many wolves did it take to change the course of a river? How many wolves assembled in how many packs does it take to change the course of a river? And the answer is not that many. How many wolves will it take to change America? They say we give the wolf a bad rap because we have the sheepdog metaphor and they protect the sheep and whatever. Maybe, maybe we don't need to protect the sheep. Maybe the sheep need to learn how to behave. Maybe the sheep need to learn how to protect themselves and become wolves. Maybe the problem is a philosophy that it's okay to be an apathetic sheep at all. That such deserve the protection of the brave. I don't think we can take that metaphor too far. I think there is a case for the strong standing up for the weak. I always will. 
And I hope that one day when my strength runs out, that there will be others to stand for me. I hope karma works that way. So I don't want you to take this too radically off the rails. But in the end, isn't it a problem that we have this philosophy that for every 10,000 sheep, there's one sheepdog? Is it time for the sheep to start seeing to their own needs in some way? Or more accurately, isn't it time for human beings to stop acting like freaking sheep or sheepdogs? The wolf is a pack animal. He's not solitary. But he does not exist in a massive conglomerate either. Each pack seeds to the needs of itself and each other within that pack structure. And they behave naturally like what they are. You have to do the same thing. The number one problem we have in America isn't stupid shows like the Kardashians, isn't presidents who would wipe their ass with the Constitution if nobody was looking, like Barack Obama and George Bush, by the way. Okay? That's not it. It's not a bought-and-paid-for Congress that is at the, at the whim of the people that put them in office, that fund both sides of the election, by the way. These are not the problems. These are the symptoms. These are the symptoms of a programmed and defeated America that behaves like sheep. We have been given exactly what we have earned as a total people. And we have to start at the individual level. And for every one of pers- every one person who will stop buying into the bullshit, who will stop compromising their principles, who will stand, who will speak, speak clearly and eloquently about the problems, who will accept what they can't change for a time, but never stop saying that it's wrong, and will find every way that they can find to live in freedom and liberty, every single one of them will create ten more. Because change by being what you are is that powerful. If it were not, a few packs of wolves couldn't alter a river. But there's some things we have to do to be able to do this. Number one... To win a fight, first you have to understand that you're in a fight. If you want me to tell you the easiest way to defeat an opponent, it's to attack them when they do not expect the attack to occur. To attack them when they think you're their friend. To walk up behind them and put a knife in their kidneys. You'll win. You'll win every time. The person that trusts you can be defeated if you go in and fight against them. Do I think you should do this to people who trust you? No, of course not. But it's what your government and what the corporations that run the government are doing to you right now. They convince you that you're their, that they're your friend, they're your advocate. Oh, there's a fight, but not with me. No, I'm the one on your side. I'm the Republican. I'm the Democrat. I'm the libertarian-minded Republican. I'm the centrist Democrat. I'm the moderate Democrat. I'm the moderate Republican. Whatever you need to hear... If you are the majority in the place that elects this clown, is what you're going to hear. In fact, the guy running against him is going to come to his, they're going to moderate each other. It's very hard to even tell opponents apart anymore in, in the final electoral process. It's an amalgamation. And it's to convince you that you are not in a fight. Or that if you are in a fight, 
you are on one side of a fight when it's both of them against you. It's mutualism, but it's their mutualism being used to divide and conquer you. So if you're going to change yourself and if you're going to try to change your country, first you have to accept the fact that this stuff is real. That the system is rigged. That the deck is stacked against you. That our educational system is part of the problem. And stop being stupid, those of you that object to me saying that, and defending the individual teacher. It's one of the most nonsensical responses you could make. And I think most of you have some sort of emotional attachment to teachers. The teacher, you could change every teacher in the system tomorrow morning. And every teacher in the system could want to go out and teach a curriculum based on grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Okay? That every, the trivium. Every single one. And you'd still have the same shit. Because they can't change it. Because the system's rigged. I just saw a commercial today. I actually made the mistake of turning on the freaking TV this morning while I had my first cup of coffee. And let's, let's watch what's going on around the world. Turn on Fox News. First, I get a big diatribe of bullshit about what's going on in Ukraine and how Russia and the United States are both going, we're not doing nothing, it's the other guy, when they're both doing it. Come on. And then a commercial ran. Teachers for Common Core Curriculum. And they put the little teacher's Twitter name, and all the Twitter names are following the same formula, so you know it's all a bullshit PR campaign, and it's teachers telling us how teachers support Common Core how Common Core is not a D.C. directive, and every decision about what to teach and how to teach it is made at the local level, which is a complete total lie and total bullshit. And you find me a hundred real teachers who actually would say, yeah, I think Common Core is great. I, I, if I could push a button and make it go away, I wouldn't. I, I want more of it. It's, it's a good idea. I don't know. Maybe you could find that in, like, San Francisco or something. New York City, I, I guess. But most of the teachers I've talked to are not happy at all about Common Core. Well, I'll put out an ad just telling you that they are. This is making you think that you're not in a fight. That they're, the people that are fighting with you are on your side. You, you've got to accept the fact that this stuff is real. We have a nation that is being led by those in power, and those in power are not those that are elected. They're, they are the mechanism by which the power is wielded. Think of the Congress and the President and the, the judiciary is the rifles and the bullets and the swords and the tanks in a battle. Okay? The corporatocracy are the soldiers firing the weapons, driving the tanks, etc., And the upper echelon of the corporatocracy, the plutocracy, are the commanding generals. And you focus on the weapon versus the wielder. And that's the way they want it. If you don't accept that that's the system, that that's the fight you're in. That the fight you're in is control by money. That that system is designed to sell money as debt to you. And the higher up the chain you are, the less you pay for your money. You want to buy money cheap? Be a banker at the top level. You can buy money for nothing. Zero interest, right? The further down, the more you pay for your money. And the more of your money is stripped of its value because you can't buy new money for nothing. I know it's hard to understand 
I won't go deep into that today, or this show will go too long. But that is the main mechanism by which control is wielded in, in modern nations today. Fractional reserve banking and centralized banks that control the monetary system of the country. Because if a big corporation wants money, they just get it. They just get it. One way or another, they just get it. And if the one faucet runs out, they open another faucet, call it a bailout. The next one will be bail-ins. And that's the fight you're under. And your education system is designed to produce people that go into that system and do what they're told. And it's all amalgamated together. So understand you're in a fight. The next thing you have to learn about being in a fight is especially when you're in a fight with an opponent that has superior strength, and just in momentum, these guys have superior strength right now. The pendulum is swinging their way. And any good martial artist would tell you in that situation, you use your opponent's own energy against him. We need to learn to stop the frontal assaults on these things and redirect the energy. The education system, for example, is, is doing a great job of destroying itself. It really is. It's doing a, a wonderful job of destroying itself. I have never in my adult life talked to more unhappy teachers than I ever have right now. Ever. I've never talked to teachers that are more miserable about their job, more miserable about what they're doing, more miserable about their schools, and more miserable about the future for their, for the, their students than right now. That's great. <gasps> Jack, that's horrible. No, it's great. It's a failed system. Why would you want to, to save it? If you had a factory that was killing puppies... A giant club wheel was spinning around. They were just throwing puppies in there and killing puppies left and right. And it, the machinery started to break down. Would you say, well, we got to fix that. It's the best thing we have. Or would you say, maybe we don't need a puppy-killing factory anymore. That's how I feel about public education. That's how I feel about a lot of public institutions. The fact that they're falling apart is great. Now let's accelerate it. How do you accelerate the demise of the public education system? If you can... Remove your child from public education. That's one way you do it. Number two, if you can't see to additional education for your child that goes well beyond what public education can do and teach them how to set up their life so that when their kids are ready to go to school, they can make the choice that you can't currently make. See the long horizon here. The wolves did change the river, but they didn't change it in a week. They didn't change it in a single generation of wolves either. They changed it in several generations. They have much shorter generations than we do. But the generational thinking has to be there. That's how, that's how you accept, that's how you use the momentum. The, the building is falling down. Pull out a support. Throw something up on top of the roof that weighs something. Accelerate the demise. And get the hell out of the way so when it falls down, you're not underneath it. And I can say that about just about any place that our public institutions are failing. Withdraw your support from them as best you can. We have to pay our taxes. I understand that. But I'll tell you a way that most Americans support these institutions without realizing it. They do it with their energy. They do it with their mouths. They do it with keystrokes. They argue about which way is best to fix it. As long as you're doing that, 
well, I think we should be doing this. I think we should be doing that. This candidate is for this. This candidate is for that. You're lending support to the system. Withdraw your support. Let's say that there was a war going on. And you were supporting one side of the war. And the enemy of the side you were supporting was using the fact that you were there to gather more support. They were actually getting more recruits because you were there. Sound familiar? I'll just, okay. But let's say in this war that the enemy you're supporting is, or the, the, the side you're supporting is actually more powerful. There's actually no reason that they can't win the war without you. You went in initially just to accelerate that process. But by being there, you've given credibility to the other side. And the other side has been able to, to last longer because they've incited more belief in their side that we're not fighting them, we're fighting the, those guys supporting them. And they're going to take over everything. How would, you, how would you win that war? Well, you'd walk away. If the side you're supporting has supremacy, is stronger, and you're actually enabling the enemy by being there, if you really want the conflict to, 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 to go away, to end, to cease, withdraw. And let nature take its course. In other words, use your enemy's momentum against him. And we need to think about every way in life that we're actually supporting that which we despise. And stop supporting it. I know they steal your money to support it, but the reality is that doesn't really matter. Your money's not as important as they have led you to believe. That's another way that they control you. If they want more money, they're going to print it, they're going to borrow it, they're going to steal it, they're going to fabricate it, they're going to create it. They'll create a new freaking system with new money and put the new money into the system. Oh, it'll never work. No, it works. It's worked over and over and over again throughout history. Every time a civilization's gone into economic collapse, if the civilization was strong in the first place, it's come out the other side of it with a new system. It's changed. It's manipulated it. The British Empire didn't collapse. It morphed. We're now, the, we're now Britain's sword. They, they, they're managing an empire by remote control through us. And we're dumb enough to believe that we're calling the shots. In some places we are, but in many places we're not. They don't care who's making the decision. Just what we want to happen isn't occurring. And if somebody else will do it, whether at your direction or not, isn't that great. I don't want those people over there to have the ability to control a market. So I could send my people in or I could instigate some stuff and somebody else's people go in and do it. Or maybe I didn't even have to instigate it because I have a friend who likes it even less than I do. So they went and did it. Okay, fine. I don't have to spend my resources there. This is, this is what's going on right now. And this is the world you live in. And when you fight directly against the enemy, the frontal assault, you give support to the battle itself. And that enables the extension of the war. The next thing is to stack the deck, you have to build an alliance of others to fight at your side. Whatever battle you do want to fight, whether it's through withdrawal or whether it's through guerrilla warfare and dismantling a certain apparatus. So yeah, we can hasten the end of a war by removing a bridge, for instance. Right? You don't do it alone. 
You do it with an alliance, but with a small alliance. You do it with your friends and your neighbors. Well, some of them don't want to come along. Don't wait for them. Just be who you are. Do the things I'm talking about today. All of a sudden, you'll find an alliance building itself around you. You'll find partners. You'll find people to work with. And you'll find a way to further what you want. And, I mean, that's the big thing. Stop worrying about what everybody else is doing and how bad it is and start worrying about what do you want. Accomplish what you want. And as long as you can accomplish what you want to accomplish without stealing from someone else, without taking something from someone else, then what you're doing is noble. Go do it. And understand that this is a war. This is a war. It's the only way to describe it. With as much death and destruction and misery as it's caused, there's no other word for it than war. But wars are fought with both arms and information, and information can be far more powerful. Tell those around you the truth, and when they don't listen, stop pushing. Give them another truth another day. And if they don't listen, don't push. Give them another truth another day. And if they don't listen, don't push, and give them another truth another day. And if they don't listen, don't push, and give them another truth. Don't give them the same truth every day. Right? And don't give them a truth every day. Wait a few days in between. Send these little bits of information to your friends and family. Try to look for the ones that are not immediately polarizing based on politics. Well, I keep sending my brother, the Democrat, information about how Barack Obama sucks and he won't listen. No shit. Really? That's surprising. You know? I keep trying to explain to my uncle, who's a government contractor, how government contracts cost the American people so much money, and he won't listen. Really? That's odd. I mean, this is the, this is the approach we're taking, right? This is back to what I said. By fighting the frontal assault, this guy believes this, so I'm gonna directly, you know, oppose his beliefs. We, we entrench the enemy, in the battle. Now this is hard because you have to understand the guy you're entrenching really isn't the enemy, but he's the tool of your enemy. And this is this is what you got to understand. Your enemy doesn't care which side you choose, only that you choose a side and, and, and go into trench warfare. That's all they care about. As long as you're fighting, they can get away with murder. Figuratively and literally. Get away with murder. So again, The way that you win this war is you have to kind of be Switzerland. A point of neutrality. These are my borders. You come inside them, I will clean your clock. Otherwise, you guys fight it out. I'm not, I'm not getting involved. You know? And, and you say, well, well, what about when they're trying to take away your gun rights? Well, no, now, now, now they've crossed your borders. Okay? So all the bullshit that they talk about all the time, every day, that's just stealing from one pile of money versus another or giving to one group versus another, that's your problem, right? Now we're going to raise your taxes. Okay, no, you're not. You've crossed my borders. Now I'm going to tell everybody else in Switzerland what you're doing, and we're going to go fight this one thing, and we'll do it in the political theater if we have to because you engaged us. Otherwise, we're out. This is very dangerous for a political system. Because it takes 90% of what they get you excited about, which is smoke and mirrors and meaningless nonsense, and leaves you only to focus on the 10% that affects you and your neighbors. 
very, very powerful way to look at things. But it comes from the spreading of information. Information warfare is real. Now, it gets dis dismantled and discredited under the term propaganda. Okay? Because propaganda is where we take and bend the truth and we mark it to suit our goals. And if you don't think this country is capable of propaganda, man, look at some of the freaking cartoons played at movie theaters to rally support for war against Japan in World War II. And the way they depicted the Japanese. Nobody be offended by this. I'm telling you what was said, not what I believe. The nips are deceitful and not to be trusted. And they had these cartoon characters with these Japanese guys with eyes you could barely see out of a giant buck teeth. This, this is the kind of shit that our country did. That's propaganda. Propaganda is the misuse of information to further the goal of whoever's putting it out. Information in of itself is simply the truth, what's happened, who did it and why, and how it affects people. See, there should be nothing political about what the NSA is doing right now, reading grandma's emails. There should be no politics in that at all. If you do tell somebody this, don't draw the connection to the president. Because if they support the president, they'll defend the NSA. And if they oppose the president, yeah, they'll dogpile on it, but for why? To attack the president. Sure, the president's culpable. I understand that. Let the person, trust a human being that if you don't attack them, if you actually give them something digestible and they digest it, you plant a seed, that the seed will take root. So when you tell your buddy about the NSA and you know he's an Obamaite, don't 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 mention Barack. And in fact, if he brings up well, the president, no, I don't. This not this is the NSA. This is the director of the NSA. Look, look, this is what he just said. He said they're doing this, and he admitted that he should have done it. And then this other guy from the NSA said that they that, that we, they need to look at how it made us feel good, even though they lied. And here, see, this is what they did. Oh, well, I don't like that. Well, I don't like that either. And then instead of saying, what we need to do is, I think it would be a great idea to say, well, what do you think we should do about it? And see what they have to say. And if they say, well, I don't know, what do you think we should do? I'd say, I don't really know that there's a lot we can do immediately, but maybe we can let other people know that it's happening. Just let them know. Let's stop telling people what to do with information and simply providing it to them. I mean, this is how you fight an information war. A propaganda war is weak. And this is why I hate, I despise the element of preparedness that, that, that hypes up and makes worse what is already awful. That commits yellow journalism. It's not even yellow journalism. It's, I, I call it like, it should be called like poop journalism. It's like yellow and brown poop mixed together. How disgusting it is. What is done. Oregon criminalizes permaculture on natural news. Somebody should smack Mike Adams in the head for that. Just nonsense. And that thing's like three years old, and now I'm getting it because I guess somebody resurrected that pile of crap. You know, telling a guy, don't build a pond there, and then the guy builds a pond there on, on government-protected land. I'm not saying the land should be government-protected, but that's what happened, right? So he knowingly does it, fighting it out for 12 years. The guy loses multiple cases... Multiple cases in court. He's told repeatedly to remove two pawns. 
He refuses to comply with multiple court orders. And after 12 years of court cases, when he finally won't do it and he's got to the end of the line, they say, fine, and they arrest him. And then Mike Adams comes out, sorry-ass son of a bitch that he is, and says, they criminalized permaculture. When the guy put in the ponds, they didn't know his ass in a hole in the ground about permaculture. This is atrocious. This is why when people send me something from National News, I delete it. I don't even look at it. I don't care if he makes valid points at times. I don't care if he breaks the... The guy's a liar. And he harms our side because he's engaged in propaganda versus information. Information is the weapon. Propaganda is an ineffective weapon because eventually the truth is known and it always comes back and bites you. Shorthand, karma's a bitch. Now, another thing we have to do, and this, this goes back to stop asking the people that are in power to fix the problem. All right? Never seek a solution from one who caused the problem. You people that actually... See, here's my thing, right? So I am in spirit an anarchist, okay? And it took me a long time to accept that because I thought anarchism meant, okay, we have to have no authority and no government now. That's what we're for. That's anarchism. We just, just remove it, everything. Well, what anarchism as a philosophy is, is a belief that man can exist without other men with guns pointed at his head telling him how to live. That we can build, over time, a society without a state. Okay? And people say that's ridiculous, utopian nonsense. But then you turn around and tell me that a good, honest, non-overbearing government can exist. Which of us is being unrealistic? And the same thing when you tell me, well, we can get the right people in government and they can fix it. When government created all these problems... And now you're expecting the system that, that generated the problem to fix the problem. This is like you have an uncle, we'll call him Sam, who lives in your home. He's a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he doesn't work. And he says, well, I can clean up my act if everybody in the family will give me some money. So you have a big family, an extended family living in one big giant home. So everybody comes home and gives Uncle Sam 20% of their paycheck every week. And he says, you know, um, uh, it's not quite enough to make this work. Uh, I need the rights to, 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 to mortgage against the house. But I'll pay the bills with your money that you're already giving me anyway. And you're dumb enough to give him the rights to mortgage. So he mortgages your house. And then he says, well, um, now the bills for the mortgage, exceed the amount of money you're giving me, and the two people that make the most money in the house, since they have more, should give me more, and all the other people in the house say, okay. Okay? So then, there's still not enough money, so Uncle Sam goes down the street to his pimps and his drug-dealing buddies, and he organizes a loan from a foreign group who provide him money And he says, here's a bunch of stuff I bought you, and everybody's happy for a couple days. And then he goes, no, we got to pay those guys too. But all I need now is access to everybody's bank accounts. And, and, and you give it to them. And the next thing you know, the house is in disrepair. Nobody can fix it. Everybody's angry with each other. Everybody in the family's fighting each other. 
And Uncle Sam has brought in two more people off the street. Okay? We'll call them Roger and Dan. R and D, right? So he sets up Roger so that Roger attracts one group of people, the people paying the bigger bill right now, giving it to Uncle Sam. And then he, he takes D, uh, Dan, and says, you got, you, you manage these other group of people and you get the whole family fighting and they're being cheered on by Roger and Dan. And Uncle Sam's there going, hey, you know, Maybe if we just get a different Roger and a different Dan, we can fix all of this. And you believe him. And you keep giving him money. And you keep giving him more access to your personal information. Because now he wants access to your emails. So he, so he can protect you from the people that follow Dan. Okay, And then he goes out and picks a fight with another criminal organization that start throwing like Molotov cocktails at your house, like once. And he says now he needs to know that nobody is working with the guy with the Molotov cocktail. Alright? So we need to investigate everybody in the house. And then Roger has one objection to that, Dan has another, but both of them willingly are complicit in the overall movement. But they make sure that all the family members still keep fighting with each other, and no one blames Uncle Sam. And they make sure that the guy that's paying the bigger portion of his paycheck hates the guy that lives in the house that only makes a little bit of money, and he really hates the guy that lives in the house that doesn't have a job. And when the guy that doesn't have a job thinks about getting a job, Dan says, hey, if you get a job, you're going to have to go get your own house. You can't live here for free anymore. And in all of this, you think that Roger, Dan, and Sam, or Roger and Sam, or Dan and Sam, can fix the problem. So you're willing to give more of your energy to one side or the other. And you believe the system that created the problem is the solution. And you trust that if you can just get enough family members to support your side, that will fix the house that Sam broke. Never seek a solution from the one who caused the problem. It'd be great, wouldn't it, if like there was responsibility and accountability? It really would. And, and if a guy broke something, he personally had to fix it. But it's not going to happen. It's like if a kid hits a baseball in your window of your house. You'd like him to accept responsibility. But you probably don't want him physically fixing the glass. Because he's going to get cut, he doesn't know what he's doing, it's going to cause a bigger problem, and the window won't be fixed properly. So you have to bite the bullet at some point and go, well, the kid doesn't really have any money. His dad's a bum, and he's not going to step up and do it. I, I mean, I can have the kid rake leaves or something to learn something, but in the end, i got to break out the checkbook, write a check, and get a professional to fix my window. Well, you can't just call a guy here. It's more complicated than a window. It's your life your community's life, and your children's lives. So while the solution in and of itself isn't easy, the first step is to stop expecting the problem to be the solution here, because it won't be. Because this is an active, agitated problem. This is a drunk, derelict, violent, psychopath, drug-addicted uncle living in your home. Throw him out. 
Stop believing in his ability to help you. He can't do it. He doesn't want to do it. Next, you have to develop skills and knowledge. Because what I'm telling you to do is get rid of your sugar daddy. You, you, you'll no longer be able to, like, okay, if you're going to live this way, let's say that your neighbor has pissed you off. Or let's say you're in a business with somebody. And, and the business isn't going right. And the, one of the members of the business is screwing it up. You can't sue. You've got to sit down and work it out. If the two of you can't work it out or the four of you can't work it out or whatever, you got to go find an arbitrator. you got to go get a non-binding arbitrator, bring them in and say, help us work this out, that has no love for any of you, that doesn't care. you got to work your own problems out. you got a neighbor living in a way that messes up your neighborhood. you got to figure out how to morally and ethically and, and decently deal with that person. You can't just call code enforcement to come do it because you're not being true to yourself anymore. You're saying, I don't need Uncle Sam, and then you're calling him on the phone and saying, hey, Uncle Sam, the Corleones are uh, over here, and they're uh, taking up some of my action. I want you to send over uh, some of your enforcers to knock them down. Uncle Sam says, okay, and now you owe me a favor, right? This is how most Americans live. You depend on the system that you decry. Stop doing it. And you have to have skills and knowledge to be able to do that. You have to start, because it's not just, well, I mean, look at it this way. So, you learn to change the oil in your car. And you're able to do that, put brakes on your car. This is an example of a mechanical skill. Now, it's not the government changing your oil and putting brakes on your car anyway. So it's not a dependency issue. But there's a psychological change. Oh, it's not that hard, I can do that myself. The mind starts to ask itself then, How many other things could I do myself? How many other solutions can I find? And it starts to work these things out. And you begin to change. Slowly, but surely, you begin to change. You can't quite explain it. And the people around you, some will think, oh, you've, you've gone nuts, you've gone weird, you've gone mental, whatever. You're like one of those crazy guys on TV, conspiracy theorist, whatever. But most of the time, they don't see it that way. They just start to go, something's different about you. And after a while, now initially they don't like it. See, people don't like it. In the words of Wayne and Garth, we fear change, right? We fear change. We do as a people. We're, we're much more comfortable with things staying the way they are. Prisoners are afraid the day they're released from prison often. Usually it swiftly becomes joy, but some end up committing crimes to go back in because they can't take it anymore. They've been institutionalized. I know when I graduated basic training, and we were going to AIT, Advanced Individual Training, we were told that you'll have more freedom now, but you know, you're still in training, and it's still going to be tough and all this stuff. And there was a certain apprehension. Well, what's it going to be like? I mean, this sucks, but I've adapted to it. I remember the day I got out of the Army. For the first time in you know over three years, No one could tell me when to get up. If somebody disagreed with me, just because they had a higher rank in society, they could no longer say, do push-ups. Nobody told me when to eat. These are all good things. I'm not complaining about right? No one could ever again say, you're going to Honduras, whether you want to or not. Even though I actually, I actually volunteered to go to Honduras as a deployment. 
But, I mean, I didn't ever want to go again. And I knew if I stayed in that you're going to Honduras, you're going to Iraq. You know, Afghanistan wasn't even thought of at the point. But the fact that we would return to Iraq, or at the time Somalia, were definite possibilities. Or that I might meet someone, fall in love and get married, and they might say, well, they have to stay here and you have to go to Korea for a year. Hope you have some leave time saved up. None of these things could ever happen again. If I ever had a job again that I really hated, I could quit without fear of imprisonment. Because in the military, you can't just quit. You can't just go, I resign. Right? I think an officer can resign their commission, but they don't necessarily resign their military obligation. An enlisted person is, you're under contract. In a sense, you're property. And I, I had realized this, and I had decided that even though I enjoyed many things about my service and it had done many things for me that I certainly didn't want to be there any longer. I was done. But then I went to the out-processing window. I handed them my ID, my military ID. They punched a hole right through my face on the ID. And they threw it in a trash can for shredding. Now, that ID had been one of the most important things I had carried for three years. I had to show up when I ate. If I was questioned about what I was doing somewhere or where I was, I had to show that ID. If someone asked me my identity and my rank in a scenario, and I told them, and I wasn't in uniform, and they questioned it, it proved that I had rank. When I was in a foreign country, it was like my passport. So they said, you're an American, what are you doing here? On the streets of Honduras, which happened. I'm an American soldier. I'm here on a security detail. Prove it. Bam. Oh, I see. Go on. It had been that important to me. And it didn't matter anymore. I would never need it again. I would never need it again. But when it was dropped into the trash can, I had this feeling, oh no, for just a second. And then I did something that I, to this day, I'm very, I'm very glad that I chose this way to get home. I was told I could either have a plane ticket to the nearest airport, which would have been about 45 minutes from my dad's home, uh, to my home of record, or I could have a certain amount of money per mile to get there. So I called a bus station because I knew I could take a bus and get like five miles from my dad's house so that that would be much easier for him. And he didn't know I was coming. It was a surprise. And I found out that the bus ticket cost like five bucks less than the money they would give me. And it was okay if I stayed at the military place one more night, uh, the out-processing center for Jackson. I could stay there another night and in the morning get on this bus. So I did. I got on the bus that morning. And I got home the next morning. It was an overnight trip through D.C. connection. Uh, and then a connection in Philadelphia and then up to Pottsville, which is just a bit away from Minersville where my dad lives. And I took that decompression time on the way home. And eventually, as many of you know who have listened before, I had, after being home for a month, realized I didn't fit in with my friends from high school, etc. And I spent uh, about a month and a half, almost two months, on the Appalachian Trail. I hiked from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire. And that helped me reconnect with being outside the military. But leaving something I didn't want to be in was difficult. Now, I, I got off on an aside there. 
But this is what you experience when you decide, I'm not going to do this anymore. Even though you know you don't want to be part of this anymore, there's so many things in your life that are now vested into this, at least you believe they are, that you can't let go. There are people that can't lose weight because they can't stop worrying about their weight. No matter what they do, they'll hold on to that last 10 or 15 pounds. Can't get rid of it. And you say, stop weighing yourself. Stop measuring yourself. Eat right, exercise, and let go. And they can't do it because what they think is, if I let go, I'll get even fatter. When they're worrying, is actually not doing anything except maybe holding I mean, the, the best case scenario is that you're creating additional stress hormones and holding on to extra weight. The other option, the only other real option is it's, it's neutral. The worrying is neutral. It's because if you're still physically doing the same things, the worrying is neutral to the weight, but it's detrimental to your mental health. So therefore it's a negative. So let go of it. And it's fear of letting go of it that makes that person hold on to it. Fear of let, but if I let go, if I let go of worrying about all the things those people are doing, There'll be nothing left. They'll destroy the country. Well, they're already destroying the country. I mean, the only good news is they're destroying themselves at the same time. But you holding on and thinking that you're going to matter when you're in their system is neutral at best and helpful to them at worst. And it's helpful to them. To fight a system, you must first extract yourself from it. You can go in a building and fight an enemy in a building, okay? But if the building is the enemy, you have to leave the building to fight the building. If the building is full of traps and snares, booby traps, and there's nothing good about the building, and the building needs to basically be dismantled and rebuilt as a new building, You can't remodel this building. This building needs a wrecking ball. Controlled demolition and a rebuild. Then you have to exit the building. Because no matter how bad the building is, if you're inside of it, you'll choose a side and protect your piece of it. And you'll try to keep it standing. And you'll keep convincing yourself that it can be fixed. But if you'll step outside of the building, the holy crap. There's a whole new world out here. You'll go, eh. And then when somebody tries to come out of that building and attacks what you've created for yourself, you'll push them back into the building. Or you'll tell them to stop their shit and join you. But you'll stop fighting their war. You're fighting their war. They're very pleased with you for it, by the way. The other thing is you can never compromise your integrity. Be true to who and what you are. It's okay to break a rule as long as it's not stupid and doesn't end up ruining your life. It's okay to do things that other people think are wrong. It really is. As long as you're not hurting anyone. If you're not harming anybody, if you're not stealing from anybody, taking anybody's property, or hurting anybody, then just because somebody thinks you shouldn't do something, and even has created a piece of paper that says you're not allowed to, As long as you're smart about it, I don't have a problem with you doing it anyway. I really don't. 
I don't think you can make something wrong because you wrote down on a piece of paper that it's wrong and wrote down a penalty to go along with it. It's either wrong or it's not. It's either intrinsically evil, neutral, or positive. It has to be negative, neutral, or positive. And if it's negative in that it harms someone else, then it's wrong. But if it's neutral or positive, and someone writes down on a piece of paper that it has now become negative, it doesn't change it. But I do think it's a very bad idea for you to do what you feel is wrong. I think it will make you incongruent as a human being. I think it will make you miserable as a human being. Now look, I'm also a realist. If you have a job right now where you have to do things that you feel are wrong, and leaving that job will immediately result in very negative financial consequences for your family, then don't quit. Yet, find your path out. Right? If you're in the building that we're talking about, and it's a 50-story building, and you're on the 40th floor, you don't run to the window and jump out. Because you'll get what they call in the military deceleration injury. Well, you'll fall to your death. No, you'll fall just fine. It's the stop at the bottom that decelerates your body faster than the internal parts of your body that causes the problem. <clears throat> well, you can do that spiritually in your family. You can do that emotionally. You can do it financially. There's a lot of ways you can create that deceleration injury in your family. You have to find an exit path. So if you're on the 40th floor of the building... You have to get low enough that you can go down the fire escape or out the door. You have to find your way out. But stop going up. And stop building a fort in, in the freaking closet. Start heading for the exit. Start at least, I don't even know which way's up and down and left and right right now. Okay, fine. Stop. Look around. Assess your situation. Figure that out. For Taking off the metaphor for you, what it means is figuring out who you are and what you want and what you do believe and what you think is wrong and what you think is right and what your dreams really are and where you would be most likely to be closest to them. And then saying, okay, now I know where I am. Now I know where I want to be. Okay, now how do I create a, a journey that leads there? And then start walking. Start walking on that journey. You might find, well, I need a complete new skill set. I need a complete new outlook on life. I need a complete new understanding of something. I need to move to a new state, to a new city. And you have to decide, what, how long am I willing to walk the path before I get where I'm headed? But head down the path. Because I'm telling you right now, if you work somewhere, And I don't just mean you're unhappy with your work environment. What I mean is that you are required to do something in your job that you find morally objectionable. Then you need a new job. You'll destroy your soul. You'll destroy your soul. And you don't have to be religious for that to hit you, to understand what I mean by that. You don't even have to be spiritual. In all of us is something bigger than just flesh and blood. 
We're not just mechanical. If I kill you dead and put you on life support, heart, beat, respirator, everything. So, you know, but you're dead. No brain activity. But mechanically, I have your body functioning. It's something I might do if I was trying to preserve your liver long enough to, to match it up to somebody or something like that. Just in a stasis that I can hold you in for a while. But you're physically dead. If I cut you and I stitch it up and I put antibiotics and ointments and healing salves on it and everything else in the world, the cut will never heal. The cut will never heal once the life is gone from you. That life is your soul. However you define it. But it is what you are as a being. It's why you think differently than every other being on the planet. It's why you cry. It's why you laugh. It's why you love. It's why you are angered. That is who you are. That life essence. And when you violate your personal moral code regularly, you destroy that being. You harm that being. And then you're able to do greater harm to others. You have to stop. You have to find a path out of the building because you will defend the building as long as you're inside it. And as long as you and the people you love are in there, man, I wish this building was gone, but my kids live in this building. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not even not gonna, I'm not even talking about causing the, the building to collapse. I'm talking about stop propping it up. Stop pasting it back together with duct tape. Stop holding it together. I can't. My kids are in here. Get them out. Leave. Now I understand. The metaphor has its limits. Well, we can't leave the whole country behind. Some people do, but that doesn't really fit. This is a global problem. But you can leave the parts of it that are most incongruent with who you are behind. But what about... As soon as you say that, you're going to tell me that somebody else somewhere is going to do something that you don't like. You got to let go of that too. Until it affects you, don't fight it. Now, don't be so eager to take everything literally and think what I mean by that is only when it affects you personally. Hey, if they're trying to take away something from your neighbor, you stand up. But pay attention to that which you can actually do something about, which is actually noble. Put your energy there. Leave the rest of it go. And you, you, again, you can't compromise your integrity. And never call theft justice. Never consider theft justice. Never call captivity freedom. And never equate safety with freedom. Social justice is one of the most horrible terms ever hoisted on the ignorance of the American people. Social justice is the taking from one person, giving to the other, and calling it creating equality. It's morally reprehensible to me to even think that way. If you're unhappy with your life, fix it. I'll even help you. But don't take from me or anybody else to fix that problem. 
Get off your ass and do something about it. Get off your ass and do something about it. But the problem is even people that will say they agree with that will still call theft justice. They'll say, well, we, we have to have some kind of an income tax. Well, you've just called theft justice. Justice means the justification. Okay? So you've justified theft. You've called theft justice. Do you realize that? When you say we have to have an income tax, we have to have some kind of property tax, you've, you've, you've basically said there's a justification to take from people against their will. It's okay. The ends justify the means. They don't. Theft is theft. They'd say, well, Jack, if you really objected to this, you would stop paying your taxes. No, no. Because if I do that, they're going to drag me into the heart of that building and lock me into a small piece of it and make me sit in it while everybody around me fights. Well, they call that place prison. When you're fighting a war, just because you believe that the enemy is wrong doesn't mean you walk up while the enemy has greater power and put your finger in the face of the enemy and say, I deny your rights to do this when you know they're going to shoot you in the back of the head if you do it. It's a dumb way to fight a war. So we have to pay our taxes. We don't have to pay as much as some people do, though. We can legally use their own system against them. The tax code is like 10,000 pages. And like 20 pages are the things you have to do. And the other 9,980 are how you avoid doing some of those things in the first 20. Learn that code. Get someone that does. Pay them. And do the things you're required to do to function in society. But don't justify it. This is, see, here's the thing. People are asking, what do I do? Stop supporting that which you disagree with. Okay, so another way to look at this. Let's say I created a new prison. And I said, anybody with blonde hair has to go to this prison. And I put you in the prison. Because you're blonde. If you have brown hair, pretend it's a brown hair prison. If you have red hair, you got it. Okay, whatever color your hair is, I made that color a hair prison. I put you in there. And it's a very good prison. It's very, very effective at holding people. And we have a rule that we immediately kill anybody that tries to get out. And so you say, because I oppose this, I'm just going to go try to get out and get shot. Well, that's not very smart. And then if I said to you, but if you'll dye your hair, I'll let you out. Well, at least until you get out of the prison, dye your hair. Well, I'm compromising my integrity. No, you're fighting the battle. Let your hair come back in after you get out. But get the hell out. But don't say, well, it's okay. Or there has to be a prison for somebody. Somebody's got to be here. There has to be some color of hair that belongs in this place. Or don't say, well, since I have brown hair and it's a blonde hair prison, it doesn't affect me. 
don't justify it. Certainly they'll say, well, maybe not all people with blonde hair should be in there. Maybe only people with blonde hair who also are under five foot six and male belong in there. Uh, and, you know, if we can at least get to that, it won't be as bad. It'll still suck, but it won't be as bad. So you're justifying the existence of the institution. This should never exist in the first place. should be no prison for people with blonde hair. Thankfully, there isn't. All right now. It's not like there hasn't been prisons that are kind of run for those same reasons in history. More like, you know, doesn't have blonde hair. But you get my point. Stop justifying theft. It doesn't mean you don't accept certain things are certain ways. It means you stop trying to support saving these institutions that steal from people. You accept the fact that even though I can't tell you exactly how we would get rid of them all, that the effort we should be making should be the elimination of all of them over time. Big thing, remember wolves are not solitary. They run in packs. Build your pack. I started this telling you how a group of wolves, just by being wolves, changed the course of a river. I started with that because I knew I was going to tell you things today that were going to challenge what you believed. That you'd say, it all sounds good, but it can't possibly work. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. It won't really change the world. All it will do is make me uncomfortable. And make me have to stop compromising. And make me have to be responsible for myself. And that doesn't sound like it's going to change anything. But if a few packs of wolves can change the course and the currents of a mighty river, then what can 10 or 15 million people living this way do to the course and currents of society? I think a hell of a lot more. But there's a, there's a phrase used in survivalism that I don't like. The lone wolf. The lone wolf survivalist. You know why I don't like that? The lone wolf is a myth. If there's a wolf that is alone, it's distressed, it's unhappy, and something's wrong. And it's looking for a pack. And as soon as it finds any other wolves that will accept it, it will do whatever it has to do to be in that pack. If it's dominant, it will be the alpha. If it's, if it's, if it's weak, it will, it will accept a position as the omega. It wishes to be in the pack. And once accepted, it will fight to its last breath to defend its pack. It will not compromise what it is. It is a wolf. It will seek out what is best for it, but it will do so as a member of a pack. Lone wolf is an ostracized wolf that was thrown out, not one that left willingly. And again, it's looking for a pack. Build your pack. And think about it that way. The people you surround your life with have their back. Have their back. Where they're weak, be strong. Where you're weak, hope they are. Where you're both weak, stand together and you will have strength. This mentality... 
This problem cannot be fixed mechanically because it's not a mechanical problem. It's a psychological problem. All of these things going on in our world today, especially in our country, which should be the most prosperous, freest nation in the world, it should be. There is a truth, a hint of truth to the concept of American exceptionalism. The promise of this nation is exceptional. Its current delivery is abysmal. We should be the shining city on the hill. That's who we should be. Not because it's a right, because the opportunity exists. The reason we're not doing it, the reason you have corrupt politicians is psychological. A belief that it's inevitable. We have to. The reason you have banks that control the money at all layers and all levels, including its creation, the contraction and expansion of its supply, is the belief that only bankers can do that. Only banks can do that. Really? Bitcoin seems to be working that out pretty well in a parallel economy. The reason we have an education system that's so bad is people believe that we have to have at least this so every kid can go to school. We have to. It's a psychological issue. It's a belief-based issue. It's a dependency of belief issue. It's a belief that someone else must because I cannot. And if that's the case, we cannot fix it mechanically. And changing out a, a politician is like changing out a part on the car. If the car has a complete and total design flaw, swapping the starter motor out and the valve covers and the differential isn't going to fix it. If the whole thing is designed improperly, it has to be done away with and replaced. This is what's wrong in America today. We have a system in failure with serious flaws in its, its design. And I'm not talking about the Constitution. Though there's some flaws there. But we're not, the Constitution almost doesn't apply anymore. There's some places where every once in a while it seems like the tide stopped a little bit by it. But in, in, in essence, your government wiped its ass with the Constitution right about the time of the Civil War. And it's just been downhill ever since. It's a disgrace. But you can't fix the system. You have to fix the psychology that enables the system and the psychology that runs the system. So that means we have to change the way that the nation thinks. Now, those of you who've had these debates with your brother-in-law who loves Barack Obama or your brother-in-law who loves George Bush, how successful have you been in doing it with a frontal assault? You're wrong because... Your guy sucks because. Your way sucks because. How successful have you been with that? Have you ever actually engaged in political debate with somebody that was diametrically opposed to your belief and at the end of that debate had them go, you know what, I was completely wrong and you were completely right? And if you have, I bet it's very rare, if ever. Have you ever been able to convince somebody to do something for their own best interest before you've done it yourself? 
If you weigh 800 pounds and tell a fat guy that weighs 600 pounds he needs to go on a diet, how much credibility do you have? But if you weigh 400 pounds and a year later you weigh 200 pounds, people come to you and say, how the hell did you do that? So if you want to change the way your nation thinks, you have to change the way you think first. You have to start believing what you do matters. And not what you, not who you vote for matters. What you do matters. You know, we started off this, I said the guy said, don't tell me to plant a tree. I'm going to tell you here at the end, plant a tree. Plant a hundred trees. Plant a thousand trees. That matters. That matters. When they start producing, pick some fruit or nuts off of them and take them to a neighbor who's down on their luck, and feed them. That matters. The letter asked me, <laughs> what happens when they take my chickens and bulldoze my garden? If you feed your neighborhood with your chickens in your garden, dare them to try. Dare them to try. Everybody's defending the building because everybody's inside the building. Build new buildings. Build complexes of buildings. Build buildings that suit different people for different reasons. Do it in packs. Small packs, but thousands, tens of thousands of packs. Invite them in. Build coalitions of independent thought, independent thinking, outside of those institutional systems. And then when they come, you won't be alone. And you'll see human beings can do something that wolves can't. That pack cohesion is strong. We don't get places in, 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 in nature where there's a threat and five or six packs of wolves for a time just say, you know what, we're going to be one big pack in this. And then we'll go back to our own thing after it's over. Wolves don't work that way. This is where we have to rise above the wolf. That's what we do. When you build those strong packs and you see an attack, coalesce the packs, unite the troops, and say, no, you're not. You're not doing this today. You're not taking this lady's rabbits. You're not taking this little girl's chickens. You're not doing it. We're not going to let you. One of my favorite lines in any movie ever. I've shared a different line from this movie. I'm, I'm going to try not to do it again today, but I probably will just because it's so important to me, this mentality. But it's it's the uh, movie Tombstone. And there's a point where after the shootout, um, I think it's Sheriff Behan tells Wyatt Earp that they're all under arrest. And Wyatt turns to him and says, I don't think I'm going to let you arrest me today. Now, there's places where that gets you really arrested. But there's got to be a point where which the people of this country just start to say, no, you're not. I don't think we're going to let you do that today. Then I'll tell you the other one. Because it actually is very important with the pack mentality. There's a scene in the movie where they're out, you know, after all these atrocious things have happened, and they're hunting down the outlaws that did it. 
And don't get into whether the story is real or not. Just take the story for what it was in the movie to understand the importance of this line. And Doc Holliday's dying of tuberculosis, and that is historically accurate. And he's coughing up blood and shit, and they're out sitting around a fire and out on the range. And one of, one of Wyatt's men says to Doc, what the hell are you doing out here in this? And Doc says, Wyatt Herb is my friend. And the guy says, well, hell, Doc, I have lots of friends. And Wyatt's, and Doc says, I don't. I don't. If I have to explain that to you, it's going to be very hard for you to accept all of the other things that we talked about today. Because that's what builds a pack. That's what builds coalition. That's what builds partnerships. That's why when you've seen people several times since this show started attacked that were my friends, I stood at their side. I did not leave them stand alone. And I would not leave them stand alone. Because I feel the same way. When it comes to friends, people that I really know I can count on, people that I know I have my back, I don't have a lot of them. I think because of what I do here, I have far more of them than I would have ever had in my life, and every single one of you are a blessing. But I still value the friends that I have as I did when they I could count their numbers on one hand. It's that value of each other that we need to restore to America. Everything else is throwing parts on a car that's doomed to failure. Yeah, we put new tires on the car, but the tires weren't the problem. Yeah, the car started, but we put a new starter on it anyway. This is what this is the mentality of America today. So we have to change the way we think. And then we can change who we are. We have to change ourselves so that others will want to be like us. That's my message for you today. I know it sounds overly simple. I don't know if I've helped any of you who are still holding on realize, let go and do what you know is right. I don't know if any of my words moved you today to take that step. All I can say is I hope they have. Because it's the only hope that we have in America today. It is the only hope. It is the only way we will change things. There is no other option. All of the innovations, all of the positive changes, all of the progression forward towards something better cannot occur until the American people once again believe that they can. Not yes, we can. Yes, I can. And yes, I will. Yes, I have done. You can't do it with a slogan. You can't do it with marketing. You can't do it with a freaking campaign button. And you can't do it with a politician. You can only do it when you stand up and say, I understand my responsibilities to myself, to my family, to my community. And I know what I am. I know exactly what I am. I am a human being. And from this point forward, I'm going to act like it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Show you. 